Well, good morning to you all. Uh, as Rick just said, my name is Eric Lipscomb, and uh, I am a campus minister. I work for an organization called Reform University Fellowship in New York City, uh, working with undergraduate students at Columbia University and in Manhattan in general. And uh, so it's a pleasure for me to be here with you today. Uh, Mark, thanks for having me, and thank you all for, for letting me be with you today. Uh, you know, we're at the end of the year. We're at the end of 2014, as has been said a little bit. And, you know, the, the end of the year is this time that is common for personal reflection. You know, and it's something that we, the, we all need to do and, and probably ought to do more often, but it just, as it so happens, we tend to wait till the end of the year to do that. Um, but I think it is this amazing means of growth and maturity. And so what I want to do this morning is look at uh, this passage in 2 Samuel 12, where the prophet Nathan sort of brings this forced reflection to King David. Um, you know, we all need a little bit of prompting at points, and so my hope for us is that looking at this interaction will be helpful as we try to process the things that are going on in our own hearts and lives. Um, so before we jump in, let me just give you a little bit of background as to where we are in the Bibles. This might not be the most familiar passage for us. So David is, is the king at this point. He's the second king over Israel. And over and over, the biblical authors refer to him as a man after God's own heart. And that he's held up as this model king in Israel, the one against whom all other kings are measured. But if, if you know about David, you also know that he's known for this rather infamous affair with the woman Bathsheba, a woman who he had, had seen on his roof and he'd taken her as his own, uh, gotten her pregnant, tried to cover up the affair, and then when his plans failed, he had her husband Uriah killed so that his, his sin wouldn't be found out. And so this has all just happened in the previous chapter, 2 Samuel 11. And so um, we get to chapter 12, and even though the text indicates that now this, the child of um, his illicit affair had been born, He's had a few months to reflect. It does, the text doesn't give us any indication that David had shown any remorse for his sins, that he had even seen a problem with what he'd done. And so David is, is like clearly missing something. And, and I think there's actually something that we're missing as well. So as, as we try to do the hard work of personal reflection, um, let's look together at 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 14, and, and see what God's word has to say to us on the matter. So uh, it's printed in your bulletin, and it's also on page 263 of your pew Bibles if you want to look there. So... Uh, 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now this is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's absolutely true and it's given to us in love. Uh, a few years ago, there was a short YouTube video that went viral. Um, and it, it illustrated this... Uh, Problems that certain couples have in, in communicating and kind of addressing their issues together. And uh, it, it's, it's a really funny video if you've ever seen or ever been in a romantic relationship. And I should have figured out some way to, you know, rig up how we could watch it. So instead, I'm going to do, you know, the impossible and try to explain something funny, you know, a visual thing that is funny. And I'm going to try to explain it. So I'll tell you the name of the video later and you can look it up if you'd like to. But um, the video opens with a couple and they're sitting together talking and they're clearly having... A serious conversation. And, and all you see is the, kind of the, the back of the man's head and the, the nose and the mouth of the woman. And, and she starts in with, with the man. She says to him, you know, I just, I feel all this pressure on me. It's, uh, it's relentless. You know, I, I, I feel it, I just feel it right in my head. And, and I don't know if it's ever going to stop. And so as soon as she says this, uh, the camera sort of pans out and it shows this full shot of her face. And, and everything looks normal except... She's got this three-inch nail sticking right out of her forehead. Um, so, so the camera pans over to the boyfriend. And he's sitting there, and, you know, uh, and he says to her, "Well, you do have a, a nail sticking out of your forehead." And of course, the girlfriend responds, "It's not about the nail." She protests. She says, "You know, stop trying to fix it. Why can't you just listen to me? You're always trying to fix things. Stop doing it." So. He, he backs off a little bit and says, all right, all right, all right I'll, I'll listen. And she says, you know, it's, it's just my head. It's always aching and, and all my sweaters are snagged, uh, every single one. Um, so, so the boyfriend this time, he, he looks at her and he says, wow, uh, that, that must be really hard. And <laughs> she says, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And then, of course, they go in for the kiss, and, you know, they go in, and the nail pops from the head, and he's, oh, ah, and don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And so the, the video ends, and, and with, the, with the sign, and the name of the video is, it's not about the nail. Um, so I, I promise the video, like I said, is, is funnier than my explanation of it. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is because it's, if you watch it, you see this very memorable, uh, vivid depiction of this problem that we all have, and that's... The fact that each of us have issues that either we're ignorant of um, or that we're really just simply content to live with, that there are things that we cannot or, or do not want to address. Um, maybe it's the fact that you drink too much. Maybe it's the fact that you harbor bitterness against family members, against uh, people you work with. You know, maybe it's the fact that you manipulate other people to get what you want. Um, whatever it is, you know, I can put it in another way. And the fact is that we are blind to the presence of and the effects of much of our sin. And, 
And even if others can see it as plain as a nail sticking out of our forehead. You know, we, we see that in David here. And, and we are often very much like him, that we are blind to the presence and effects of our sin. And this is a huge problem. Because our sin, your sin and my sin, is destroying us. And it's also doing damage to others as well. Right? You, you may think that your shortcomings are harmless, that they're... Uh, you know, that your mess isn't just that, just isn't that messy. But, you know, the Bible and, and human experience tell us otherwise. And so we want to address this reality. And, and how does this text help us in that regard? Um, this blindness to sin. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And by asking three questions. Uh, first, what is sin? Uh, second, how can we grow in recognizing our sin? And then finally, what will free us from our sin? So, so the first thing, what is sin? Now, if you've been around a church before, you know that sin is a word that gets thrown around a lot by, by Christians. And, and on the one hand, uh, kind of this working definition is uh, these certain actions that, that bring dishonor to God and do damage to ourselves, uh, to others, and to the world uh, at large. Right? We, um, you know, we see David kind of admitting this in his own life in, chapter, in verse 13. He, he says, you know, wow, I have sinned. And, and while you, know, you and I or others may debate what actual actions are sinful or what attitudes are sinful, uh, the fact is that there are people and us who do bad things at times. Um, you know, David, David admits as much, and I, and I think that's a fair assessment for him. But the thing is that we, we read this most of the time and are tempted to separate ourselves from David, right? right? We think our little sins are just that, that there are these inconsequential misgivings that aren't that bad or really aren't worth raising a fuss over. And that's if we're even able to see them at all. Right? You know, people are, are warranted at getting mad at David for doing big things like committing adultery and, um, you know, murdering the husband of this woman. But, you know, is it really that big a deal if I talk badly about an acquaintance behind their back? Or is it really that, you know, big an issue if I fudge the numbers on my taxes a little bit? Right? You know, at least I'm not like David. At least I'm not like... The murderer adulterer, like he's, you know, he's the king and he does all that stuff. I'm just a normal person and I'm living pretty good, right? I'm not like her. I'm not like him. I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm pretty good on my own. Well, what if we thought of our sins this way? Now, imagine you went to the Sistine Chapel in Rome and and on the roof of the chapel are, you know, of course, this 5,000 square foot paintings that Michelangelo did over, you know, over the course of four years, four years plus. And so imagine you go there. And you, you're walking through and admiring the, the amazing beauty and, and work of this um, painting. And you see somebody in the corner uh, up on a ladder. Uh, and they're taking a little bit of either black paint or paint thinner. And they're just sort of smearing a little bit of, of this, uh, this fresco. Now, you know, we could say, you know, it's not really a big deal. It's just a little part. It's just a little portion of, of uh, that painting. But what it's actually been doing is... <laughs> This person is bringing amazing dishonor to the artist and his efforts. Right? He's doing irreparable damage uh, to this amazing artwork. He's ruining the experience for everybody else. Uh, and he's really bringing shame upon himself or upon herself. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just if it was one smear. Imagine if there were smears all over the place, uh, whether it was localized in one place or all over. Um, you know, if, if you're an artist here today, can you imagine somebody doing it to your own work? But... You know, that's exactly what the Bible says that my sins and your sins do. They dishonor God as the creator. Um, they damage his beautiful and good creation. They hurt his people. Uh, and they bring shame and harm to ourselves as well. You know, the Bible in Genesis 1 lays out this picture of God creating this world that is good and beautiful. People living in harmony. 
um, in delight. But what our sins do is they wreak havoc on that. They, this peace and flourishing that God intended for you and for me, um, the, the biblical word for this is shalom, this wholeness and fullness. Uh, and what our sins do is they wreak havoc on that. Um, it's not just things like murder and adultery, not just the big things, but the little things like your pride and your jealousy, right? That we are wrecking shalom when we come home and we put our work ahead of our families, right? When you have a friend who needs you, but you uh, put your work ahead of them, right? That you hang your identity on how successful you are in your job and then get upset when anything challenges that, right? Even the things you do in secret that you think no one knows about or that no one does know about, you think they can't hurt anyone. They're smears just the same because they bring shame to you. And, and God cares enough about you for that to upset him and for that to be painful to him. Right? That's why our little sins are being worth being sad about, worth being angry over. Um, we recognize how great the world was supposed to be. We see this picture in Genesis 1. And then we recognize that our sins are marring and wrecking that intended shalom that God meant for us. So... So this is what our sins are on the one hand. They're these, these little things that you and I do that bring dishonor or damage to God, to his world, to ourselves, and to others. But you know, at the same time, when we talk about sin, um, we're not just referring to particular actions all the time. We're also sometimes referring to a kind of capital S sin, this um, core disposition that we all share. You know, Not just these wrongful actions, uh, not just these behaviors, but this, this inward disposition to be bent away from God and his good purposes. Um, now, you don't see this mentioned explicitly in, in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, um, but if you turn over to Psalm 51, what you have there is, is David's reflection on the events that have happened here in, in 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 11. And in, in chapter, or rather in verse 5 of, second, of Psalm 51, David says this. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, now what he means is not that he was the product of an illicit sexual relationship, right? He's simply acknowledging the fact that since his conception, he has been sinful. You know, to, um, to quote our friend Lady Gaga, you know, he was born this way. Um, and, you know, if you've ever worked with small children, you, you know this, right? You, no one had to teach your son or your daughter or me or you to, to be selfish, right? It's just kind of in our nature. Well, well, how did this happen, right? We had this picture of Genesis 1 of, of everything being so good, but if you flip over to Genesis 3, what you see is that Adam and Eve turn away from God. They rebel against him. Um, and what that does is that brings the curse and the frustration of sin upon all of creation and upon every, every person. So now our hearts, instead of being naturally directed towards God and his good ends, they're naturally directed away from him and towards our own selfish purposes. Right? So every person's individual sins flow from this sinful heart condition, Right? this problem that we all have that is actually much deeper than the individual actions that we, that we do, right? The, the damaging and dishonoring things that we do are not the root issue, right? This, this capital S sin, this heart condition that we have is our root issue. Now, I, I, I imagine some of you are wondering why I'm hammering on sin and on sin so much, right? It's not like the most happy thing to do, particularly right after Christmas. Um, but the reason I'm doing it is because it, it really is so pervasive in our world and so destructive. And yet... Often we don't give our own sin a second thought. Right? We might be acutely aware of the ways that you've been sinned against. Um, you might be acute, acutely aware of the ways that others have harmed you. But we really don't give much thought to our own issues. Um, 
Or maybe we minimize how bad these things actually are. Or maybe we just don't see them, uh, like the nail in the forehead. Right? We can see it in other people, but we can see it in the person smearing the Sistine Chapel. We can see it in David. Uh, but we don't own that reality for ourselves. And, and I think this is actually where the genius of, of the prophet Nathan's story uh, comes in. He hits David right between the eyes, right? Because he tells the story of, of a rich man and a poor man. And he, and he tells the, the one rich man who had everything, who had sheep and flocks and, and, and anything he could have ever hoped for. And then he contrasts him with this poor man who has nothing but his family and this one little lamb who he brought up as his own. Right? He, he cared for it tenderly. Uh, he nursed it as his own daughter. And there's this fun little play on words. Uh, the word daughter is uh, bot in Hebrew. And, you know, uh, if you know who David had been committing adultery with, it was Bathsheba. Uh, and so, but he's, he's doing this. Nathan is sort of setting him up. And, and he, as he goes on in the story, he tells of, now the rich man has a traveler come. And instead of taking one of his many flocks, he goes and he steals the little lamb away from the poor man. And he serves that as the feast for his guest. Right? And, and, and so David hears that and he's like, he's enraged. And, and, and when I read it, I, I'm enraged. I mean, that is just this gross cruelty and injustice. How could somebody do that? How could they possibly do that? What a monster. What a jerk. What an, you know, expletive. Whatever, however you want to fill in the, the blank, right? That, you know, but, but underneath that sort of righteous rage, at least, you know, for me, is this, also this thought, you know, like, I'm nothing like that. I am not like that person. But look what Nathan does in verse 7. Uh, he rips the rug right out from under us. He looks at David. And he says, you're the man. That's you. He says to David, and he says to us, that's you. You were the one standing there. Smearing the chapel, of the, you know, smearing the Sistine Chapel. You were the one who has stolen this man's little lamb, this precious lamb, right? We've been we've been sitting there building up contempt for this person who would smear the chapel. We've been building up contempt for this rich man. Like, who would do such a thing? And yet Nathan flips the table on us, and we're forced to confront the reality that though my behavior may be different in some ways from what's going on here. My sinful condition is exactly the same as that man. Uh, I have wronged God. I have wronged others. I have wronged myself. Right? And, and that's meant to be jolting. And we need that kind of jolt because we don't see the extent of our sinfulness. Um, I think that's as true for us as it is for David. Now, so if it's true that our sin is this deeply rooted, this utterly pervasive thing in all of our lives, uh, then the second thing... Uh, we're going to look at today is, is how do we better recognize our own sin, right? And how do we grow in our capacity for seeing these destructive things for what they are and growing from them, right? And, and let me just say at this point that, you know, in no way do I right now want to um, minimize the harm that, you know, someone's sin has in- inevitably done to you, right? Like the, the abuse or neglect that, that you've um, gone through, you know, these are immensely painful and heartbreaking things. And, and so I, I'm not... I'm not trying to downplay those things at all. Today, though, I, I just want us to, you know, do want us to recognize our own sin and begin to take some responsibility for the messes we've made. So, so how do we do that? Well, well, think about our story and think about uh, what's going on with David, right? Earlier we said that, you know, we tend not to see our own sin. We, we tend to minimize the badness of it, right? We're, we are in some ways blind to his presence and, or at least just how devastating it is. 
And, and I think that's what's going on with David as well, right? I mean, that's why Nathan has to come and confront him. You know, I, I can imagine David um, in his own mind thinking, you know, I, I, I saw this beautiful woman and she was attractive and, the, and I was attracted to her and, and I loved her. And so I, I just did what I needed to do to make that happen, right? I, I, just, I just followed my heart. Um, what, what could be wrong with that? Um, and, and so you, you, you know, we have this ability to rationalize our behaviors that is, is uncanny. And yet, if we look at the story, what we actually see is that you know, he coerced Bathsheba, he got her pregnant, lied about who the father was, and then had Uriah killed before he could discover the actions. Right? We, we look at this, we look at David, and we see his sin very clearly. But David himself seems to just be going about his own life um, as if you know, nothing were terribly wrong, right? And, and the problem is that his self-perception is skewed. And the, and the problem is our self-perception is skewed, right? That, that we've got the nail in our forehead, the log in our eye, and we don't really know it. Right? So what we need is other people in our lives to come in and confront us of our sin, right? And to point us towards this proper standard for living. Now, you know, what's fascinating about this story is that David isn't ignorant of right and wrong, of justice and injustice, right? He, he's furious when he hears about what the rich man has done stealing this lamb. But it takes Nathan saying to him, you know what, you're the man, that's you. Um, you know, even, and, and, and David hears that and he says, oh my goodness, even, even in my best behavior, I'm, I'm really just like him, right? So that, and the same is true of us, like any of us can know right from wrong, justice from injustice, and yet still think of ourselves as pretty good because our self-perception is so skewed. Um, and we need others to reveal our, our, our waywardness. Um, kind of to show us where we're going off the rails. Uh, on the front, we have a, just a, a reflection. And uh, it's from a guy named Paul Tripp, who's a, who's a pastor and counselor. And I just want to read a little part of that to you on the bottom. Uh, you know, he says, uh, you know, the reality of spiritual blindness, and kind of this, this phenomenon that we're discussing, uh, has important implications for Christian community. Personal insight is the product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. You know, as, as I was um, kind of preparing this, I was, I was thinking about, you know, where, where have I seen this in my own life? And, um, you know, so I work with students at Columbia University, and, and these students are remarkably brilliant um, and unbelievably driven. Um, and it's, it's really a joy to work with, with kind of these people who are so just amazingly talented. But, but one of the things that I see over and over again as I, as I meet one-on-one over coffee uh, is that they are so tempted to hang their identity uh, on their achievements, um, on their you know, resume, and, and in such a way, not that, like, you know, if they get a bad grade, they're not just like, oh, man, that's a bummer. Like, they are crushed in a puddle on the floor that I'm, like, kind of trying to build back up, right? And so, so I see this all the time, right? That, that they make the quality of the work the measure of their own worth, right? And so, so I see this, you know, day in and day out. And yet, I was thinking about, you know, this, this uh, incident, not incident, but this uh, interaction I had with a friend, my friend Michael, um, back in, uh, I think, late September. And uh, I'd had just a week, a hard week, uh, some, some meetings that were canceled on me that didn't go well. Uh, I had preached a sermon that I wasn't pleased with. And, and I was just having a drink with my buddy Michael. And he was asking me how I was doing. And I was telling him, well, you know, I've been really kind of, 
I don't know, depressed this week, kind of down. And, and he just asked me why. And like, well, I was telling him about happening. He's like, dude, you're, you know, you're doing the same thing that you tell your students about. Like, you think that you're valuable because of how good your work is. And you're hanging your identity on that, right? And I, and I looked at him and said, oh, my goodness. I, I, I see this every single day when I meet with students. And yet I was so blind to it in my own life. Like, how, how is that possible? I'm, I'm, I'm calling students out on this. Like, they don't see it. I'm telling it to them. And yet I'm doing the exact same thing, and I have no idea that I'm doing it. Like, how, how can we do that? Well, the reason is, is because our self-perception is skewed. And so we need others to, to confront us in those things, to, to lovingly point out our sin to us, but also to point us to God. To point us to his words, this proper standard for living. And, and I think that's often where, where we can go wrong, right? We, we think we're doing okay because we're judging ourselves by our own standards. Um, or we think other people are the problem, like my spouse or my roommate. They're the issue, not me, right? You know, we're either they're the problem or we're judging ourselves by our own standards. And, you know, that's kind of the spirit of our age. Either, you know, kind of shift blame to, to somebody else or... You know, just follow your heart. You know, the, your heart can't be wrong. You know, the heart wants what it wants. Go after it, and uh, you know that's what makes you a valuable and unique individual. And no one has the right to put restrictions on my heart, um, on my expressions of it, um, on my expressions of individuality. But wh- what's the problem with that? Well, as we said earlier, you know, if it's true that our hearts are corrupted and misdirected, if you follow that where it wants to go, then you're much more likely to move away from human flourishing uh, than you are towards it. Right? But, and the other problem is that it assumes this perfect self-knowledge, right? that, that you're able to know yourself well enough um, to always know what's best for you uh, and to not need the input of any other people. Right? There's, there's this kind of hint, maybe more than a hint of just arrogance in that. Right? So you know, if our hearts aren't sinful, then that, I think that's a fine assumption to follow your heart and do, do what it says. But, but if our hearts are sinful, then we need other people to, to expose our hearts for us, to show them to us, to say, where am I going wrong? What am I doing uh, that is damaging to others, that is damaging to myself, that is dishonoring to God? Uh, And then we need to invite people to honestly call us out in those habits and patterns and point us to God and his word, right? The purpose, uh, his purposes as the source of life, right? So the, the question I think for us right at the moment is, you know, will you seek other people out to do this for you? Are you... Are you willing to allow people to say things to you that you maybe don't want to hear? You know, do, would you do something scary like asking your kids, uh, hey, how have I wronged you in the, in the past week, in the past month? Um, ask a, ask a, um, a spouse, somebody you, you trust, a, a, a good friend. You know, um, will you be able to hear them or will you simply dismiss their observations as false? Right? Will you ignore your disregard for others? Or will you give it the friend the chance to address it? Will you, like me, like I was doing, will you continue to try to rationalize your, your sin or, or to stay blind to it? Or will you allow a pastor or a counselor uh, to come in and to give you a, a caring rebuke? But, you know, this thing goes both ways, right? That, that you, we're not just receivers in this, but we're also, we're also givers. That, um, that we are called to lovingly confront others and, and not in a way to, to bring them harm, but to, to, to lovingly reveal to them the ways in which they are falling short of, of this flourishing that God has intended, right? Are you, are you willing to confront a friend with their gossip problem, with, with their eating disorder, right? Or are, are you, like me, often so nervous about how they're going to receive it that you don't dare to say anything? 
Um, you know, I, I, I imagine this is probably how Nathan felt. Uh, you know, he was the, this prophet, but he was going to the king. And if, if David had flown off the handle, you know, uh, he was done. Like, he was no, no more. But yet, he was faithful to God's calling in his life. And I think for us, being faithful, it means that we do this for one another. Um, not in order to wound, not in order to say, look how awful you are, not to wag the finger. Uh, but rather to help one another with our personal and spiritual growth by humbly and gently revealing on those areas of sin to each other. All right, so let me, let me recap and then I'll, I'll jump into the final point and I promise it's shorter than, uh, than the first two. Um, we started by saying that, you know, sin is, is uh, these acts of sin are these damaging and dishonoring things that we do that really flow from this distorted heart. And then we noted that, you know, we're often blind to the presence of our sin and that in order to better come to an understanding of, of who we are and where we're going wrong, that we need other people uh, to name that for us and to point us towards God and his word. And so the last point, though, is, you know, uh, what is going to free us from our sin? Because if, you, if you've lived any time at all, you know that, um, that this is much easier said than done, right? That, uh, that it's one thing to say, yeah, let, let people into your life. But it's another thing to actually do that. And I think it starts, where it starts is what we see in, in verse 13. Um, you know, Nathan has sort of laid out for David kind of all you know, the things he's done wrong. He's kind of put this litany of, of things in front of him. And, and, and notice what David says. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I, I think that's interesting because notice what he doesn't do. Right? He's not trying to hide his mess like he did before. Right? He's not saying, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll try harder next time. He's not trying to pay off this debt. He's not trying to manage his sin. Uh, or, you know, make excuses for his bad behavior. Right? He, he simply admits that he's completely and utterly wrong. Right? And, and what you see coming out of this is this, this freedom from this guilt that, that has kind of weighed him down. And, and if you pair this with his reflection in Psalm 51, what you see is this genuine confession of sin, right? And this weeping over the destructiveness uh, that, his, that his actions have caused. Right? So David does this, and he also does something else. In, in verse 10 of Psalm 51, he says, uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Right? So David is, is saying, God, Lord, I need you to go right to the source. I need you uh, to fix me. It's not enough to change my behavior. It's not enough to do that. I need you change my heart right so once we recognize our sin and once we honestly confess it uh, we need to turn away from that sin but then the last problem of course is right how how can we turn away from our sin what is going to give us ears to hear when somebody tells me that i'm a you know when my wife tells me that i've been the jerk to her or that i've been uh insensitive to my mom you know like how can we turn away from our sin it's so ingrained in our hearts as we said Right. And what about, you know, why do we not, why do we not see a lot of our, our, our sin? Why do we not address it? A lot of times there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame that is wrapped up in that, right? So, like, we are afraid of, of bringing that up. So what can I do? How can I make that known to God and others? What is going to enable me to do all that? And I think what enables us to see and to own and to confess our sin uh, is what we see coming in at the ver- end of verse 13 when Nathan assures David 
that the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Right? So, so David at this point, you know, under the law of the land, is guilty of murder and adultery, and he deserves to die. Not only by the law of the land, but by his own indictment. Right? He said this man deserves to die, and he should repay what he did fourfold. And yet, God withholds from him the punishment that he justly deserved. Now, that's not to say that David's sins and our sins don't have consequences, right? If you read through the text, you see Nathan kind of laying out, here's going to be all the consequences of what you've done. But what we also see is that as much as our sin is awful and wrecking, that that God is exceedingly gracious and he doesn't treat us according to our sin, right? And, And the reason that the Lord can do that is because the reason that he did that for David is because he was withholding that punishment until he would pour it out on Jesus Christ at the cross. You see, Jesus was the true Davidic king, right? That as much as David had been held up as this ideal, that Jesus came through the line of David, he was willing to come off of his heavenly throne, become a man, and keep the law perfectly on his own, and yet be crucified as a criminal to pay for the penalty for David's sins, for my sins, for your sins. Right? Jesus had the nails placed in his hands, in his feet, and he died on the cross in order that sinners like David and like us would be free from sin. Right? The sin no longer defines us. And when we, when we know that, we can now be honest with our sin. That we can say, yes, this is true of me. These actions are true of me. This heart is, is, who I, is what I've done and who I am. But it's not what ultimately defines me, that... I'm defined by Jesus on the cross dying for me. But that Jesus was also not only died on the cross, he was also resurrected to restore us, to restore the world to that intended glory, that intended shalom that he meant for us and for his world in in Genesis 1. To bring us back into a relationship with God and to ensure that we would know flourishing with him forever. He did this for you and for me, we who had dishonored him, who had damaged his creation. And when, and when you know that, that enables you to, to recognize your sin. It enables you to repent of those things in order that we might be reconciled and ultimately know that flourishing, right? That we can stop band-aiding over our, our bad behavior. We can stop just saying, I'll try harder to, to be a nice guy next time, right? And instead we rest in the knowledge that God is working, that he is good, that our status before him as forgiven, as righteous, as secure. Right? Our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and is hidden in him. You know, God knows your warts. He knows your secrets. He knows the nails sticking out of your head. He knows the smears you've put on the painting. Um, He knows that you've been wronged. He knows that you've been harmed by others. And yet he did something about it. And he is doing something about it now. He is bringing redemption to you to me and to this world, uh, working it here and now in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, let me pray for us now. Lord God, we are just so grateful for your son Jesus, Lord, that though we all um, have sinful hearts and sinful actions, God, that you do not uh, count those against us, but that you have poured out the penalty for those on your son, Jesus. Lord, that is an amazing gift. Um, It's something that I I don't reflect on enough. 
Uh, Lord, I don't reflect on my own sin because it is shameful. It is guilt-inducing. Lord, but I ask that you would uh, give me clearer sight of your son Jesus, um, of his work on my behalf and on our behalves. Lord, give us all that sight that we might, uh, in the light of that, uh, confess our sin, have ears to hear when others point it out to us, uh, and that that would lead us to grow in grace and maturity um, both today and in the coming year. Lord, we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.